Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Chicago Justice Show. I'm your host, Tracy Siska, Executive Director of the Chicago Justice Project. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really uh, excited with our guest today, Sarah Stout, which I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, Senior Policy Analyst and Staff Attorney at the Chicago Council of Lawyers. We're going to talk about the from what is HB 3653, I believe, um, the big basically criminal justice reform bill package of bills that was passed by the Illinois General Assembly. Pretty and pretty unprecedented um, reforms in that package. We could all argue it didn't go far enough, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, I'm sure we can all talk about wanting uh more reform packed in there and more reforms down in the future. But we're going to talk to Sarah about what the Chicago Council of Lawyers has in store moving forward. The bill's 800 pages. So today we're going to talk a little bit about pretrial and a little bit of, and, uh, and focus on the policing. There's a lot of reforms, which uh, I'll mention a little bit in the end, but there's a lot of reforms packed in the bill. You should go to the Chicago Council of Lawyers webpage and just read um, some media coverage about what's in there. Don't Pay attention to the gloom and doom that came from the police, the Illinois Sheriff's Association, the Illinois Chiefs of Police. Ignore that part. Um, but you can pay attention to some of the good reforms that are in there, and there's plenty. Real quick about CJP. Every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Central, we have our CJP Nation meeting. It's a Zoom. Jump in if you're interested. There's a picture from a couple of weeks ago. This is uh, where... We bring interns and volunteers um, and interested parties together to help CJP expand our policy and research capabilities. So just a couple quick projects or crowd research projects that are going on. Um, research in CAHOOTS, which is a program, an alternative response program to some 911 calls out of Eugene, Oregon. It's spreading across the country. We want to propose something like that in Chicago. So we have a group that is focusing on researching that soup to nuts so that we can build a policy recommendation in Chicago. The Milwaukee Homicide Review Commission. That's another project. There is a project like that in Milwaukee that's been ongoing about collecting data around homicides and shootings. We want to be more robust, but um, there's a group researching that for us so we can propose something like that in Chicago. There's also a group looking at what we're helping us create, what we're calling our legislative agenda. And that legislative agenda is we believe um, being someone who's been involved in this for 25 years now and has helped build or construct a lot of the police accountability system in Chicago, I think um, a lot of what needs to happen is front-end reforms. What I mean is reforms uh, that create laws to, to restrict the activities of our justice system and the police department. So if you don't want a police officer kneeling on George Floyd's neck, you don't make it a policy uh, that they can't do it. You make it a law and you make it a felony. That happened a little bit in the uh, package of reforms that we're going to talk about today, but it needs, in my opinion, needs to be expanded. The city council can do some of this. The Cook County Board can do some of this. And the Illinois General Assembly can do a lot more than they've done, although we're happy with these first steps. Um, so they're helping that. And then we have this project, Open Cities, which I think by the end of this week, we're going to be up to around 85 or 90 people from around the country 
working on this, and it's a scan of the top, will probably be 300 to 500 cities in this country. Looking at what data they make available around the criminal justice system, we're going to put a tool together that takes all of that and organizes it, judges, grades out the each city individually compared to their, well, each city compared to their uh, size across the country to other cities. Um, so if you want to jump on that project, all of this is discussed every Wednesday at 7, and the Zoom link uh, that's in the chat, you can get in there and join us tonight at 7, Central, or any night, any Wednesday. Okay, real quick, the show, this show that goes on Wednesdays, 12 to 1.30, and also goes for, uh, it's going to start streaming, it has started streaming police board meetings. We're going to do city council, Cook County Board, and Illinois General Assembly meetings that are relative to criminal justice. We have one tomorrow night, I believe it's 7 or 7.30 Central. Uh, we're doing the police board meeting, but we're also expanding this to 5.30 Central, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, starting March 1st. If you want to sponsor this show and help out in that, you can do that at the link that's going to be in the chat or in the and post it on social media. Um, that would really help us. We would appreciate it. So we'll be back in one, mi one minute with Sarah uh, to talk about the reform packages. Join a group of engaged and committed individuals advocating for transparency and accountability in the local justice system around the country. Get engaged through crowdsourced research projects, digital activism, public policy advocacy, or become a social media ambassador. Our criminal justice system will not reform itself. Communities must demand it. Transparency can be the fuel for justice our local communities need to combat the weaponizing of data by our justice system. Transformation of our justice system cannot occur until we know exactly what they are doing and who they are doing it to. Get involved today, CJP Nation. All right, we are back, and I'm happy to welcome Sarah Stout. I'm pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. She's from the Chicago Council of Lawyers, and we're going to delve into a little bit about what she does and the organization does, but mostly we're going to talk about this 800-page reform package on the criminal justice uh, passed by the Illinois General Assembly. So, Sarah, just to start out, can you tell us a little bit about what the Chicago Council of Lawyers is and what you do there? Sure. So the Chicago Council of Lawyers is a public interest bar association. So what we do is a little bit different than your average bar association, which is really like a professional group for lawyers. Um, CCL was founded specifically to think about how can lawyers advocate for the people that we serve, particularly people who are not served well by our court system. We also have an associated nonprofit um, so I work sort of both places called Chicago Appleseed Center for Fair Courts. That's a 501c3 that does similar work, but does a lot more research and advocacy um, and also and legislative advocacy sometimes around court-related issues. And so we've been, uh, we were founding members of a group of nonprofits called the Coalition to End Money Bond about five or six years ago. And that coalition has grown. It's picked up a statewide arm. It's drafted legislation. It's made changes in Cook County. And now it has 
passed historic legislation that will end money bond in Illinois. So we are incredibly excited about this legislation, uh, incredibly excited, uh, and I'm happy to talk about it. All right. Can you give us, do you have, uh, yeah, I guess, can you give us an idea behind the scenes how this, what ended up being passed by the Illinois General, General Assembly, how did this happen? What were those politics like in the beginning? And then how does this come to fruition in a, in a state that usually doesn't see anything like this re- kind of reform pass? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really give most of the credit to the organizing groups that are members of the Coalition to End Money Bond and similar groups. What was really unique about the advocacy that we did around our pretrial system here is that we partnered research organizations like me. I, I sometimes say that I'm, you know, I'm the wonk in the room in general in these things, right? I'm the one who does who does the data research and the careful you know, the careful legislative drafting. But in order to get things done, you need people to understand the issue and advocate for it. That's a lot of what happened here over the past five years. More recently, since the beginning of 2020, we knew that Governor Pritzker um, had ending money bail as a major priority. There had been a version of our bill, which is called the Pretrial Fairness Act, and ultimately ended up as a part of HB 63653, um, but not the whole thing. There'd been a version of that in the legislature for a couple years, actually. Um, and as the year, so the original plan was for Pritzker to, to really lead the charge. As the year went on, though, the George Floyd protests came. And with them came the Legislative Black Caucus picking up the agenda and really running with it. And Money Bond, because of the advocacy we had done, was central to that conversation. We had a bill ready to go. We had sponsors who were excited about it. Uh, LG Sims and the Senator LG Sims in the Senate, uh, Senator Robert Peters also in the Senate, who were both sponsors at various times, uh, and Representative Justin Slaughter. So when their package came together as a criminal justice uh, omnibus bill of sorts, there we were right in the middle. Um, of it and our bill as we crafted it as organizers and activists and policy advocates. Um, it was in there exactly as we had written it because we had gotten to the point where we had our sponsors and everyone very well educated about why this needed to happen. Okay, so let's go over some of uh, the reforms here. Um, there is way too much, as I said at the top of the show, there's way too much in this bill to talk about the whole thing and everything it possibly does. We have uh, communicated with uh, Joby Cates from Restored Justice, who is going to be on uh, in the coming weeks to talk about uh, what if this does for incarcerated people and um, community corrections, that type of ilk. So that 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 section of the criminal justice system, right. um, it would take us hours to sit here and go over this whole thing. Um, I am flabbergasted that something like this passed in Illinois. I really, um, we, we need more, but um, this was a tremendous step forward. Ending, the idea of ending cash bail um, is an unbelievable Huge. Yeah, it's almost inconceivable to me that 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 happened. Um, I, 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 we're going to stay on that for a second since we're there. Um, what it, it, it honestly um, 
you know, there's this, in the media, there's this um, coalition grouping of right-wing political agenda groups that try to hide themselves or disguise themselves as news operations, Chicago City Wire, CD, CB, CWB or Crime and Regular Bill blog, it's turned into like a news outlet. And they're just pumping new, attempting to pump out news all the time about every crime as if like, oh my God, you're such under a threat. And they're very, they, they have picked up significant followings. Given that, mm-hmm. I, I, I would have never thought that this, there was room for this kind of reform. Um, yeah. So, and yeah. I think it's because we did a ton of community education and a ton of community mobilizing, both in the communities that are targets for that kind of fear mongering. So your, your North side and, and the suburbs, but also more importantly, I think in communities that are directly impacted in large numbers by money bond. And we were able to, you know, we directed thousands of calls to legislatures, to the legislator, not just saying you should vote yes on this bill, but actually having people around the state who were educated on why ending cash bail was important, on what we wanted to replace it with and why that was a good idea, and on all of the other things that make the bill work. Um, you know, so we, it was it was legwork that that impacted people really did uh, to overwhelm that narrative, which I do think usually you know, sometimes has wins the day, frankly, in terms of criminal justice conversations. Yeah, it's still amazing. All right, let's get into a couple of them. Um, (laughs) So there's a statewide use of force standards for law enforcement agencies. Why do you think, is that a major reform? And why do you think that'll have some kind of impact on how policing gets, gets done in Illinois? Sure. So I'm just going to be upfront. Um, you know, so while while I was heavily involved in the drafting of the uh, the pretrial fairness act sections, I was not as heavily involved in the in the police reform stuff. So I know things about it. And I'm happy to talk about it. But you know, if there are questions, there there may not there may be questions that come up that I don't know the answer to. But no problem. Use of force is basically, um, you know, we. It, we need to have a set of rules about when and how our police use force. One of the political conversations that led to this final language, I think, is that in earlier drafts of the bill and other drafts of legislation, um, there have been very, very specific rules about when you can and cannot use force, which did make it into the bill. Um, but I also think there was there was a push from law enforcement to sort of get a committee together to make a statewide definition uh, and to have them be on that committee. The important thing about a statewide anything in police reform, though, is that statewide means that someone other than the police brass and mayor in Chicago have some control or rules that they can enforce over the Chicago police. There are policing problems everywhere in Illinois. It is certainly not just Chicago, but to the extent that Chicago is the biggest problem, at least numerically, um, anytime that the state is taking power, whether it's with licensure or with use of force standards or other kinds of statewide reforms, that means their 
providing another layer of oversight that isn't from the Chicago police establishment over the Chicago police. At least that's the goal. Yeah. Yeah, And I think it's a noble one. I I was, there was plenty of fear mongering from the police and the police unions um, as this process was getting done, especially in the late stages. I I believe Um, the phrase was, Ending, pol- ending policing as we know it was the phrase that was being bandied around before this bill passed. Yeah. Yes, th- th- that would be what I'm talking yeah. about. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. I searched and I read their stuff, and we're going to have uh, shows about it. I'm going to pull some of their videos that they made online, especially the FOP, the Fraternal Police President in, um, in Chicago, who every time I've committed, every time I'm going to say his name, uh, Kanzara, John Kanzara, Katanzara. I'm not mistaken. Okay, Katanzara. Um, he has 50 complaints against him, ladies and gentlemen. So for, before you take him as being fully credible just because he got elected, um, um, he's got 50 complaints most internally. I think the Chicago media should put that, and every time they quote him, that should be in next to the quote so you have some context. Yeah, the fear-mongering was amazing. And I, I, about why there would be a problem with having statewide uniformed use of force policies is beyond me. I think having a cop at the table and um, and maybe someone from the like Illinois Police Association or something or Illinois Chiefs of Police, that seems reasonable to me. And but I don't understand why that, of all things, that was one of the things that they fear mongered about so mad- magically. They also complained about the next two things, which I'm going to combine into one I want to talk about, which I think is really... The ma- one of the massive reforms as far as accountability, making it now a crime for turning off your body camera on purpose, right? That now it's a crime yeah, to lie in a important. police report. And I will tell you, I've been in the rooms with some of the reformers in Chicago. I've been in it since the late 90s. And I said, I wanted to make them have, like when a police officer signs a police report, they're actually under oath. And I got pushback from people about that. Mm-hmm. Reformers. Well, you can't, you got to understand what they're I'm like. No, 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 no. If I, at that point, especially in the mid, mid two thousands, right. It, it, I had to sign under oath. If I filed a complaint against an officer, why doesn't an officer have to sign a report? Why don't they have to be, why doesn't it have to be truthful? And that was one of the things that they found really kind of offensive. Excuse me. Their response to this. Um, but I just want to get your opinion. I know it's not exactly in your belly wick here, but why no, do you think that's important to make these things as that as actually crime? that is in my belly wick because before I in my in my previous life I was a criminal defense attorney. Um and I was a criminal defense attorney sort of over the time period that we started having body cameras, um, which was a really interesting thing to watch. Uh the the problem of cops turning off or not turning on their body cameras, it is hard to communicate how often this happens. Um, and it's clear and, and is clearly intentional. I mean, you will hear cops on body camera say things like, uh, you know, to other officers, wait, turn your, you know, are you on or are you off? May basically asking, am I currently being recorded? Um, mm-hmm. We, which is, you know, and this is a huge problem. Body cameras, the the research is pretty clear that body cameras are no silver bullet for protecting 
people from excessive force. Unfortunately, it turns out police do pretty much the same things they did when they weren't being filmed as they do when they are being filmed. But it's hugely important for evidence. And it's hugely important in court for avoiding wrongful convictions. It's also hugely important for making people understand that when impacted communities say that there are major, major blatant injustices being done against their communities, including things like bold misstatements of fact in police reports and, um, and you know, flagrant Fourth Amendment violations, which anyone who spent time in 26th Street will tell you is true. It gives credibility to people who don't know as much about the system to say, hey, look, here's the video of it happening. Um, and I think that's incredibly important. Uh, ultimately, we uh, it's great to be able to catch it after the fact. We need to be able to also prevent police misconduct, right? And body cameras don't do that. But the ability to, the, you know, making it a crime and meaning it, and, you know, creating some risk of actual consequences for these kinds of body camera violations or for lying in a police report is incredibly important. Here's the thing, though. We will need to make sure that those cases actually get charged and prosecuted. <laughs> so, you know, a crime on the books is only good if it's actually used on You know, there are times that prosecuting cops criminally are going to make sense, and there's times that they won't, depending on the severity of what happened, right? But we do need to make sure that if this is the law, that our state's attorneys, if they see an egregious violation on one of their cases that they're prosecuting, that they refer that officer to to felony review or misdemeanor, you know, or wherever else they need to, to get that officer investigated for a crime. That's a pretty hard thing to get prosecutors to do um, because they are relying on those very same cops to secure convictions. So it's going to be have to be something we monitor very, very closely, as is anything that creates criminal charges for police. Yeah, I, I, well, I agree with everything you said, but I just want to say I, I've seen that also in some of the video that's released by COPA. Um, you'll see these shootings and then the detective shows up or the boss shows up and says, turn your body camera off. Right. Like, I don't know. I don't understand why. Wait a minute. The, you're not, the incident isn't done until they're like off their shift. What do you mean turn it off? No, no. If they're going to give you a statement, it has to be on the record. You don't get to mm-hmm. say, oh, I don't remember what he said. So I've always thought that those people should immediately be fired, right? That that should be a termina- terminable offense. You you purposely turn that off. I don't care. Yes, yeah, you're, you're shaken, but you have to, um, you have to, um, deal with what you've said during that time. And we should understand that officers that are involved in um, incidents are also going to be shaken, much like uh, survivors of violence are, and their statements are going to have some inconsistencies right off the bat. It just is. But um, in Chicago, the the discrepancies are so large so often that it isn't just from trauma. It is purely from lying. Well, right. Um, I mean, and it's not like a law that was passed. Sometimes you'd think from the comments that are being made that the law says, the new law says that anyone who doesn't turn on their body camera 
is going to be prosecuted for a felony. No, it has intention requirements, right? There's a requirement that pe- that this is something that's intentional and knowing and that it's not the result of a mistake or circumstances, but that it's specifically targeted towards people who are tur- who are not turning on their body cameras or who are lying in police reports because they don't want the truth recorded. So, you know, that is something that, you know, it to, you know, to turn on a body camera, you literally have to go like that. That's all you have to do. Um, and not only does that turn it on, but it actually, they're cool. They like back record 30 seconds um, because they're basically always recording and they save the previous yep. 30 seconds. And you can even hit it late and you'll still get everything. Um, but we need, you know, that is not a particularly egregiously high bar to ask our professional police officers to do. To turn on their body cameras. No, no, it's extremely, extremely low. And it's um, the people that are the people that wouldn't do it are most likely the people doing something that they that we want to see and they don't want recorded. And that's why they're doing it. I mean, uh, it's definitely a tell. Okay, Uh, here's something I love of this. Not that I don't like all of it. This is something I especially love. No more sworn affidavits. We got rid of the sworn affidavit when we're filing complaints. So for those who don't know, um, many years ago, um, basically the Illinois Fraternal Order of Police got um, in, I can't remember, oh, the Uniform Police Peace Officers Disciplinarian Act is what, Disciplinary Act is what it was in. It basically required anyone filing a complaint against an officer Um to sign a sworn affidavit under the threat of prosecution if you lied, um, if they think you lied in the complaint. And that's certainly knowingly, I think it was done knowingly that to people right. who are the most, from the most underserved communities who also bear the brunt of police misconduct the most, um, trust the system the least, and less, are going to be less likely to sign an affidavit. And I talked to, I had a source that was pretty high up in the department. He's now retired, but he, I brought that up to him and he goes, you know what, honestly, as a good policing measure, I'm against the affidavit rule. We need to Mm -hmm. collect as much information as possible about our officers and what they're doing. It doesn't mean that I think all those complaints are legitimate where someone won't sign an affidavit. And then he goes, in fact, I think a lot of them aren't legitimate. He goes, but we still need the data. And this was something, um, it was a giveaway to the unions to reduce the number of complaints. So that's my take on of it. Um, I want to get your take about how big this is. This is huge. This is huge. Um, because the other thing you have to realize is that, you know, retaliation is a very, very real, real threat in communities that are over-policed. You know, the, if you, when you sign your, when you sign an affidavit, the, the risk of perjury is scary, but also the officer knows your name. They know which arrest it is. They know where you live. Um, and you know, it's not like retaliation has to be, you know, coming up to you in a dark alley and, beating you up, right? We know that, you know, your house gets, your house can get targeted for, you know, additional, uh, stop bys by police. You find your car gets stopped more often. And these are very, very real things that happen in over-policed communities that make, you know, when I was a defense attorney, I often suggested to my clients that they make COPA complaints, um, when they had, you know, when there was video of them, having experienced, you know, massive police misconduct. 
they usually would not do it. And their reasoning was that they were likely to run into that cop on the street again. And if that cop knew that they had made a complaint, they were in danger. Um, you know, and that's, that's very real. The other part of this, of course, is that police officers are also supposed to be able to make complaints against other police officers. And so this, you know, this rule, you know, is also basically a way to reveal whistleblowers. So you, why would you break the blue wall of silence when you can't even get past the complaint stage before the person that you're talking about sees your name and knows exactly who you are and what you're doing. Right. And um, just to remind my viewers, once again, the head of the FOP, he has 50 complaints. Most of them are internal. So even with everything Sarah just talked about, he is so bad. He's been so bad on the street working that he he, um, was so bad that the officers gave him their name and filed 40 some individual complaints against him over the time he's been on the job, which is like 14 or 15 years now. I mean, that is a staggering, staggering reality. So anyways, a little more about him. Um, I can't stop talking about that reality. All right. I want to talk a little bit about um, an interesting topic that I've heard about complained about for my 25 years in this job. And that this bill um, this omnibus package here changed it, which is for redistricting, proportioning districts. Those that are incarcerated used to always be counted as part of the jurisdiction or district that they are incarcerated in. So not only are they being taken from their inner city communities, which is a lot of the people, especially if we're talking about Chicago, they're taken out of their inner city community. They're housed downstate and across the state, um, mostly in rural areas. Those rural areas are getting jobs for incarcerating them, getting resources and funding. And then those people in the prison, prisons, are being counted as if they're residents of that community for redistricting. And that is now ended. That is, and they're getting counted where their home, where their last known residence was, which is only, in my view, the same thing to do. Anything less is mind-boggling because basically you're ripping, you're taking more money out of the communities. Besides ripping them out of the community, you're taking resources that would be uh, proportioned to those districts, right? To those communities, you're taking that from. So it's actually, so it's actually interesting because this is a talking point that actually comes from uh, you know, the opponents of the bill, and it's actually not true. This bill doesn't affect money. Nothing about this bill affects oh. money, which doesn't mean it's not important, but it does mean that, you know, there are, when you hear fear mongering about this is going to bankrupt small towns that have prisons and we need these resources for X, Y, and Z, there's a COVID edge to it where they'll note that they need, you know, hospital resources <laughs> because prisoners are local hospitals, which is true. Uh, but it's beside the point because it doesn't, this doesn't affect any money. It affects representation. It affects how we decide who gets representatives in the General Assembly, in the state, uh, in Congress. And the and it's so important. Like you said, it's basic fairness. I mean, we, we do this every 10 years. Uh, most prison sentences are less than 10 years. They don't live there. <laughs> there's no, you know, there's no reasonable argument to be made that for the purpose of representation, they either 
live in those in those communities or share interests with people who live in their those communities they've been forcibly removed from their homes it's not you know it, it it's really very basic common sense it's amazing we got it done um it this is a problem all over the country very few states if any have succeeded at getting this done What's even better, and I think is probably part of the reason, I'm speculating somewhat here, but I think is part of the reason why this bill moved so quickly and moved in January, was that if it had moved later, we would have missed the ability to do this for the 2020 census. So we would have instead not been able to do this until 2030, um, but redistricting meets in 2021. So we will be able to you know, basically put this in place immediately. Um, and that wouldn't have happened if we had, that potentially could have not happened if we'd waited to do this. Um, it's, it's huge. I, it'll be very interesting to see what it changes. I think nobody knows particularly because we don't take a census of where prisoners are from. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's, it's just common sense and it's a huge reform. I can't, I harp all the time on the show and I'm going to continue to about just how, um, dysfunctional our criminal justice system is i read this line uh in a summary of the bill that i've read and it just it kind of blew me away that this wasn't already happening there's this creates a mechanism for the illinois department of corrections to electronically track an incarcerated person's last known address that's a crazy one uh, are so what they're telling us is up until 2021, January of 2021, oh, yeah. the Illinois Department of Corrections didn't have it in their databases about where people came from. That's not oh, no, in no, their no. data. It's worse. Like y- you have to understand okay. how far behind our data systems are on criminal justice, which is something the Pretrial Fairness Act is actually working to address. Not only does IDOC not keep that data, but I mean, it was relatively recently we had prisons that didn't have wireless internet. I mean, we are so, we have, our prisons are in tiny isolated places, right? They're very, very far from other things. Our technology is hugely outdated. And I think even the people within the department who have a genuine desire to improve, uh, often are sort of hamstrung because they don't have the data that's necessary to make those decisions. So, and, and that's, you know, basically all through the pretrial fairness act when we were talking about pretrial we included a provision that said and also we need to figure out how uh, figure out what the data is on this how we're going to collect it from every county and make sure there's a mechanism there to make it public because right now we don't do any of that yeah it's astounding and we've um had uh deborah witzberg who's uh Deputy Public Safety Inspector General um, for mm-hmm. the city of Chicago. On, she's been on the show three times in the 10 months we've been going, but they've kept issuing report after report after report of just how broken the um, the data systems and the data accountability um, and like even responding to subpoena practices within the CPDR. I think people oh, yeah. imagine because you can uh, you can so quickly do certain things online that your your police department is going to be or justice system or justice agency is going to be so much more advanced and they really aren't and um this is why in my opinion the leader should pay the price 
you took over, you're now leader, especially anyone that's been there two, three, four, five years. Why haven't you been championing these issues? Why are, and this is, here, go I'm going to, I'm going to give my hobby horse. And it's funny if anyone who knows me in policy land is watching this because I really do bring it up all the time. It is because Illinois is unique among all 50 states in that we do not have freedom of information act. The freedom of information act in Illinois does not apply to the court system. It does apply to the yep. CPD. They mostly, their problems are um, structural rather than, than legal. But a lot of this court data, um, there's no, we did the courts. There's a court decision that says they don't have to respond to FOIA requests, which was not the intent of the original law. Uh, it's, it's an interpretation. Basically the judiciary interpreted themselves out of the Illinois FOIA statute. Um, and so that's something that if you're, if there's no mechanism to force an organization or, you know, a part of government to make data available, not only are they likely to not um, make it public themselves, but they're also likely not to keep it in a way that is, you know, that is, that is clean and accessible, even if people do ask, because they don't, they don't have to, it's, it's not operationally important to them. So two so things, that's, one, that's we are the, three, we're Sorry. three years into a FOIA loss, no problem. Three years into a FOIA lawsuit on the Chicago Police Department. Um, I could go on that forever. People can see those FOIAs on our website. We are in the midst of getting ready to sue the Illinois Department of Corrections for a series of FOIA violations. That will be this spring for sure. Um, yes, um, we have an agreement with Judge Evans that is now five years old, going on six, maybe six years old now that grants us access to every piece of data they collected since they first started collecting data to wow. the, till through today. Um, we can't get a foundation to give us 25 grand to pay the old clerk. We couldn't get a foundation to give us 25 grand to open up all that data. And now the new clerk, um, Iris Martinez, we are talking to her chief of staff, I believe, um, and we're trying to see when um, they said they would honor that request. So we're trying to see when we're going to get that data. But yeah, that's a huge problem. And just real quick before I, I get a couple more questions for you, but um, everyone, our attorney general, uh, Kwame Raul, may be great, may be bad, make your own opinion. He authored a bill a few years ago in the, he was a senator, as I remember, right? Um, I think he was in the Senate. Um, but anyways, in, in the Illinois General Assembly, he authored a bill to exempt prosecutors from the Illinois Freedom of Information Act, basically saying they were created in the Illinois Courts Act and thus are exempt from FOIA, just like the courts. It went nowhere, but Mr. Attorney General Transparency Reform, I'm the best guy ever, tried to exempt prosecutors from FOIA in Illinois. A little context always helps. Um, so real quickly, who lobbied against this bill? Who were your, who were the group's main opponents? So I think it's important to note that like the bill as it exists with all of these issues put in together didn't exist until, um, you know, shortly before it was filed in, in December, the original, the first version of it. Um, that doesn't mean the individual parts weren't, uh, weren't in other bills, hadn't been talked about. I mean, on Money Bond, we had had eight subject matter hearings at which law enforcement from all over the state had testified. Um, and a, you know, multiple year Supreme court commission and a lot of other things to discuss these issues over time. Our opponents were mostly law enforcement and prosecutors. Um, 
I think that there is there, which, you know, to me is frustrating as a person who relies on data because ultimately we have, we are not the first state to make major changes to our money bond system. For example, New Jersey essentially outlawed money bond. They still exist. It still exists in a couple cases, but mostly stopped using it. Um, their crime rates continue to go down. Uh, we have tons of data that tells us that jailing people is dangerous and increases recidivism over time and all sorts of other bad effects. And letting people go pre-trial doesn't cause a public safety risk. It just doesn't. And, you know, so a lot of those arguments that we were hearing were just the same. I mean, I felt sometimes like I was listening to uh, you know, a speech from the late eighties, like a, like a George H.W. Bush speech or a Reagan speech. Many of the talking points were really, really similar. Um, and it's just stuff that isn't, that's been disproven. I think one thing that's very notable on the bond stuff is we had one group of, of, um, of advocates who are, who are sometimes have historically sometimes been opposed to criminal justice reform and very much was not in this case, which is this bill passed with the full and passionate support of the Illinois Coalition Against Domestic Violence, the Network Advocating Against Domestic Violence, which is a Chicago-based consortium, Mm -hmm. and um, Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation. So from the beginning, we've been working with victims at rights advocates in the DV, in the gender-based violence context, probably the easiest way to talk about it generally. Mm -hmm to actually make sure that this bill does away with money bail, which doesn't serve crime victims any better than it serves people accused of crimes. And that throughout the bill, as we designed the the decision-making systems that are going to replace money bail, that we kept the unique needs of domestic violence victims, sexual assault victims in mind. So we, you know, this, they, they didn't, you know, there's in Springfield, sometimes groups like that sort of go neutral on the bill. They just say, we're not going to oppose it. They supported this bill. They support this bill and they are still vocal supporters of this bill and are working with us on implementation because this bill is better for survivors on notice requirements and making judges take, uh, you know, history of histories of abuse into account and all sorts of other issues. So we've heard some law enforcement try to make the argument that getting rid of money bond is going to, you know, make, make rape and domestic violence, uh, survivors less safe. And that I find very frustrating because the advocates who work with those survivors every day, um, who represent those survivors. Many of these groups are run by survivors, worked with us on drafting this bill, support this bill, consider this bill to be a major piece of reform in their part of the criminal justice system, as well as anti-racism and criminal justice reform. Well, never, I mean, you can't be surprised you saw fear-mongering from the justice system in response to reform. The mere idea of reform um, Brings up fear mongering to them. Yeah, you just um, yeah, yeah, and they are of the people who hate change, and they they love being over us and overseeing whether or not we break the law. But God forbid anything oversee what they do. That's a whole nother thing. So I'm going to get you out on this question: What's next on the agenda of the Chicago Council of Lawyers? 
around these reforms. Um, so what's next? So the Pretrial Fairness Act and at the center of the the and that ends money bond and uh, replaces it with a full hearing system uh, that totally revamps the entire pretrial system in Illinois. Uh, we still have to implement that, right? So laws are only as good as the training that goes in to making sure that people know how to apply them, the work that goes in to make sure that they work across the state. Um, so in terms of what we're doing, there's a delayed effective date on this bill. And the reason is simply because it's just such a huge change. I don't think it could be done in a year. And that was the feedback that we got from the courts, which is why we did the compromise that um, means that it will not go into effect until January 2023. But we're going to be spending our time doing massive judicial education, prosecutors education, defense attorneys education, um, gathering data, getting uh, getting these domestic violence provisions fully, you know, fleshed out, getting Supreme Court rules applied that will help facilitate this system. There is so much to do. And I think as advocates, you know, my big thing is, is you know, passing a law is the beginning. It's not the end. Um, I think that if we pull, if we pull this off, we will have pulled off one of the greatest successes in criminal justice reform in America in the 21st century. Um, there are two states that have tried to, to eliminate most or all of cash bail and after passing laws to try and do so have failed to keep those systems in place, both New York and California. Uh, New Jersey kept theirs. So uh, out of three, two have not been able to sustain those reforms. And now we're trying. So we're going to need a huge amount of support um, from, uh, you know, we're, we're going to need a media and a public that's open to listening to us. We're going to need a court system that is willing to learn. And we're going to need a ton of resources and people to help make that possible. Yeah, I've always told people, especially my students, there's a difference between how a law is written and how it lives in the world. It's a living Especially like a in living Illinois. Thing. Right, right. Especially, but you know, especially in the criminal justice system, there's a difference. Yeah. And I've helped write policy and I've helped write laws that created mm -hmm. COPA and Deputy Public Safety Inspector General, the forms on the police board. You can write something, but God almighty, getting people to follow it, right? You got to be very careful about how it's written. So, um, Anyways, thank you so much, Sarah. We really appreciate you jumping on with us to discuss these issues, and we look forward to um, catching up with you in the near future to talk about how implementation is going to go. I'd love to. Thanks so much thank for having so me. Much. This was fun. Stay warm. Thanks, yeah. All right. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much again, Sarah. Thank you so much for jumping on with us. We're going to do a couple of quick segments on some news, which we're putting on our shows um, um, at the end of our shows now weekly. Um, once again, this will probably be as we go three times a week starting March 1st. We're probably going to have one show that just strictly focuses on news coverage of crime and justice issues. Because as Sarah was just talking about, it's vitally important about how the media covers um, reforms, covers the justice system, because it sets the environment for whether or not we can have meaningful discussions and look at data, excuse me, rather than fear-mongering. 
the justice system is also good on the fear mongering, let me tell you. So the first one I want to look at today uh, in this segment is Jason Meisner's, which I think how you pronounce that. It's an article about the federal fight against carjackings, bringing tough sentences, but hurdles limit case count as violent heist mount in Chicago. This article is so poorly done. It sets you up because you think that there's the possibility, there's the structure says, um, that's going to allow the justice, the, the federal prosecutors to have a real impact on carjackings. Yes, carjackings from um, have grown year over year as in January, 150%. There is no doubt that it is um, an issue that Chicago needs to deal with. There's no doubt about it. Um, thinking that federal prosecutors were going to federally prosecute their way out of this problem is, um, that's kind of laughable. And here's the laughable part in, in the, they've looked at one month of cases, I think, or they looked at 30, I shouldn't say they even looked at a month. They looked at 33 cases in January. Um, <clears throat> Uh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't even say that. They looked and found out that the U.S. Attorney's Office in the two years, because this uh, started in 2018, so it could be two plus years, because I don't know the exact date it was started. Um, they've charged just 12 cases. 12. I would say the title of the article should be um, maybe federal prosecutors promise to make an impact on carjackings was a fraud or has turned out to be a fraud prosecuting 12 cases out of any crime in chicago and making it going in from the cook county to federal is not going to make any difference whatsoever and the thought that it could is ridiculous is if this if now the question should be going to the federal prosecutor and say is this what you had in mind did you always think it was going to be 12 cases because they talk about um some of the systemic problems in the article. One of them is the federal system doesn't really deal with juveniles. It doesn't have a structure to do that. That's left to state prosecutors or Cook County in this in this case to deal with because they have a system to deal with juveniles, right? They go to juvenile detention for a while, then they go to, if they get sentenced to prison, then they go to, when they become 18, they go into, um, the they can go into the adult system. Well, yeah, we knew this was an issue. So, did the question be federal prosecutors, did you know this originally? Like, how many cases did you, did you plan on charging a year? They've charged two and two and a half, three years. They charged 12. That's like four, maybe six at the most, but it could be as little as four a year. That's not going to make a dent. Did they know this? Did they lie to the public when they did the big, I'm sure they did a big press announcement. Um, it's just so frustrating. Um and it's interesting if you uh, look at uh, the actual piece and you read it, which I suggest you all do, it definitely alludes to the fact that the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, it's somehow their reforms and their choices that are playing some major role in carjackings and their sentences. Um, because it talks about how the, you know, I'll, here I'll give you a quote. It, the initiative was touted as a way to an elevated prison sentences apart from the often revolving door of the Cook County criminal justice, I guess, system, and deter others from participating in such acts. 
Now, one, I think I bet you Jason Meisner either pulled that from an article he wrote or someone else wrote about this back when the feds released, announced that they were going to get involved in prosecuting carjackings in 2018 or came right out of a press release. Um, second of all, um, it doesn't seem like he made a call to do, get that quote, but um, success in getting long sentences, well, you're supposed to doubt things. So I guess the question would be, is that successful? The fact that they're getting these long sentences, is that a success? Is that a marker of success? Anyone but those prosecutors would think is a good thing. I don't know, but I bet you there's some varying opinions on there. There might even be data out there to show not whether the long sentences are working as a deterrent. Now, one would think, considering from this year to last year, January to January, we had a 150% increase, that those 12 prosecutions and long sentences for everyone involved in those prosecutions is not having the, um, the deterrence effect that we thought it would. So you could possibly think with that marker, possibly, that the deterrence impact has actually been zero, nothing. Now, the second question that would come up then is how much money are they spending? Is there, There's a task force doing this carjacking. How much money are we spending on this task force and these 12 prosecutions um, and all the cases they're probably reviewing to actually, are we better off putting this task force disbanding it and focusing those prosecutors on political corruption or some other more meaningful, maybe homicide, something more meaningful. Um, that question is never um, talked about. Also, just for a little context, people, you don't get this so much when you read the Chicago news. Carjackings is a problem in major cities across the country, not just in Chicago. It hasn't been great in Chicago. Um, but it's all over the country, and it's all over the country, especially since uh, the onset of the pandemic. Uh, that, And it doesn't seem to be going away, despite what the criminal justice system has done, and despite these, um, these task force, or this task force, I'm not sure they're doing it in other cities. So um, just a little more context, the story could have definitely been helped. Um, I fear that there was a little more driven by press releases and... Um, than actually a desire to cover the issue um, more thoroughly. It definitely could have been benefited from a more thorough coverage and actually making phone calls. So here's um, our last segment is a Frank Main story. He's going to be a frequent um, person, I'm sure, that we're talking about on this show. Journalists were talking to you from the Sun-Times. Jason Meisner's with the trip. Frank's at the Sun-Times. Chicago requires convicted gun criminals to register. Makes arrests, but won't prosecute violators. Okay, so this once again has to do with an ordinance violation. Ordinance violation. This is the same crapola to some extent that was about the Chicago having the strictest gun laws. Yeah, Chicago had a really strict ordinance with almost no teeth behind it around gun possession before the Supreme Court struck it down. And basically what it can account for is they would destroy your weapon. This is more of the same kind of crapola. Um, this was basically brought on by an alderman complaining that the city, because what happens in an ordinance violation is that it isn't the Cook County prosecutors. It's the city's law department that prosecutes those ordinance violations. And there's real question about whether or not that makes sense. 
You can be incarcerated, I believe, for a short period of time for the ordinance violation and whether it makes sense during COVID to prosecute people. Um, the gun offender, and it basically talks about the gun offender registry and how it was established under Rahm Emanuel in 2013. Um, and here's a crack up. The aim was to alert the police to use extra caution when approaching any suspect. The police department's arrest database shows in the registry. Well, if they get arrested for gun possession, the police department has the data about that arrest. They can include an alert system that says, hey, if you're looking up the person, hey, be aware, this person's got a gun possession arrest. But they had to create a registry to do it. They didn't really have to do that. That is BS. What this was is the gun registry is basically a uh, a shaming, in my opinion, it's a shaming tool to shame people because they go online. And the big question is whether they can ever go offline. Um, once they're on that gun possession registry, can they get off of it for after a period of time? And if they can't, is that basically... Uh, branding these people for life and whether or not that has some economic impact on these on this person and their families going forward. In the Sun-Times article itself, it has, look up a little box, look up if there's a gun offender on your block. Well, that's shaming. That's what that is. Um, and I don't know why um, they think that's going to work. There's no science behind it working. Um, but that doesn't stop politicians from yelling about it. Um, and basically, if you look in the article, you talk about how every year hundreds of people are, are arrested for violating the gun registry ordinance, basically being busted for unlawful possession of a weapon and then either not registering or not updating their registering when they move. And I think they're supposed to update it every year. And I'm sure these people don't care about updating it every year. I don't know what it does. Uh, I don't know what good it does. I don't think there's any science to prove it has any impact. And I should say any positive impact to the criminal justice system or on the future of reoffending. In my opinion, those registries can actually have an impact. We'd have to study this so, uh, scientifically, and I think one should be done, is whether or not this um, being on the registry stops your ability or impacts your ability to get a job. And if it does, that's bad news because the inability to get a job in the future is just going to push you more towards illicit markets and in the possessing a weapon in the future. So it actually could be backfiring. Now, you're talking about hundreds of cases a year. The Chicago uh, Sun-Times looked at 33 gun fender arrests in 2020. Okay. That was right as the pandemic was hitting. So those court cases were going to be affected by the onset of the pandemic. Why not look at 2018 or 19? It's been active since 13, so why not the six years before that? They looked at 33 cases in January of 2020, right as the pandemic was hitting. I don't think that is a representative sample about what's going on with the pandemic. I mean, what's going on with the registry and how prosecutors are responding to it. It is a maybe a representative sample of how prosecutors are responding to it and the city was responding to it in the lead up to the pandemic. And as the pandemic was uh, setting in, I don't think... Um, I, don't, I, I don't think that's sound methodology. 
Um, they had plenty of years to look at, maybe compare 2019 when it wasn't anything to do with the pandemic or early 2019 to see how the city was handling it. The city came out with a statement that flat out said it's, um, it was in, their, their decisions were impacted by the, the pandemic. And I, I don't think incarcerating more people for a simple offense um, of not getting on this registry um, makes a difference. It should be something that we're incarcerating people for any period of time during a pandemic, um, especially as cities across the country were um, working on releasing people of states were around the country. Um, that registry has grown from 1,400 to 4,500 people, by the way. Um, and to think about it, whether it made an impact or not, number of killings last year in Chicago were 769, um, one of the deadliest years on record, right? And we had a gun, gun offender registry for six years. Why didn't it reduce the killings? You think after five or six years, the killings would be down. Um, it's just not good sound research once again you're looking at, you're looking at um journalism you're looking at mostly quick journalism not focused on looking at the big picture 33 cases in one month leading up to the pandemic is not sound at least it's not sound research in our in our perspective okay so ladies and gentlemen thank you for tuning in i really appreciate it we will be back next wednesday from 12 to 1 central oh no we will be back tomorrow night for the police board hearing so you can check us out on youtube twitter facebook or twitch uh, get involved comment post questions if you have any we'll be streaming the police board tomorrow night and then we'll be back next wednesday 12 to 1 and then starting march 1st 5 30 central monday wednesday friday as we expand the show thanks again to sarah for um coming on the show and talking about the omnibus reform package. And uh, thank you for tuning in and we'll see you tomorrow night, hopefully.